Brooklyn Emerging Voices Fellowship is a literary mentorship that provides new writers the tools to launch a professional writing career. Emerging Voices is the most amazing program that allows the writers to develop. It's the opportunity to have my work in the world, to get to the truth of my writing, to know that what I'm writing matters. Welcome to the first season of the PEN America Emerging Voices podcast. My name is Amanda Fletcher, and I manage the fellowship out of our Los Angeles office, but I was also a fellow in 2012. Emerging Voices, or simply EV, began as a literary mentorship in 1996. It was designed to launch professional writers from underrepresented communities. In the 22 years since, the fellowship has evolved to include master classes, UCLA Extension Writers Program classes, hosted author evenings, professional author photos, public readings, the list goes on. If you Google Pen America Emerging Voices Fellowship or simply visit pen.org, you'll find all the details there. So far, 141 writers have come through the fellowship, soon to be 146 by the first week of August. We've published close to 50 books and been included in literally hundreds of other projects. While you're there, please check out the brag sheet. It's pretty impressive. So why then a podcast? Well, yes, EV is a national fellowship and we are accepting applications until August 1st, so get yours in. But we do only accept five writers a year and you need to relocate to LA at basically your own expense for the duration of the fellowship. So this podcast brings the emerging voices to you. Each episode will plant you in the middle of the LA Lit scene, featuring EV and alumni, workshop instructors, author evening hosts, and mentors. You'll get an intimate look at the writer's life. Every episode will include valuable takeaways, writing exercises, prompts, and craft advice. Guys, I want you to think of this podcast as a story. We'll start with the first draft and probably go through many, many revisions. Maybe we'll throw out the beginning and bring the last paragraph up. Let's, let's workshop this thing. Tell us what you wish we were doing more of and then what you hope we will never do again. Let's see what we come up with. This is the Pen America Emerging Voices podcast. This is the story of EV. Hi there, and welcome to the inaugural recording session for the EV podcast. I am here with Alex Espinosa, who is the professor and director of the MFA program in creative writing and literary arts at CSULA. And Alex is also our prose masterclass instructor. Hi, Alex. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. It's great to be here. I'm so glad to have you. Uh, today was your first session with the 2018 Emerging Voices, and talk to us about how that went. It went great. It went great. Um, it's a, a very exciting uh, group of writers who are, I think, you know, writing some amazing stories. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing their work develop. I think that's one of the most exciting things about uh, being involved with the uh, the EV uh, Fellowship is is over the years being able to see uh, the growth and the development of the writers that I've worked with and, and seeing them go on to accomplish amazing things. So uh, I have um, 
I have all the faith in the world that these uh, this new crop is going to produce some amazing work. And our first submission today was was fantastic and a really intriguing uh, novel uh, that I think has a lot of potential to to grab attention and and to get some accolades. So it was fun. It was really fun, and I'm I'm looking forward to the next couple of weeks. Awesome. And you also got tacos from me for lunch. I did, and they were really delicious. Thank you. I'm so excited by that. So tell us how you started working with Emerging Voices and with Pen Pen America. I started out as a a mentor to a really wonderful uh, writer, uh, Evie Fellow, named uh, Nathan Goh. And uh, it was really fantastic because I was really nervous about being a mentor. I had never mentored a writer and uh, Nathan had never been mentored by a writer. What year is this? This was 2012. It was 2012. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I'm losing track of time uh, because I've just been doing this for for a while. But yeah, that was 2012. And so, you know, it was really great. And, you know, Nathan went on to uh, pursue an MFA at the University of Michigan and um, is now off in the world doing amazing things. So that was my first sort of foray into the, uh, the world of, of, of the Penn uh, EV uh, Emerging Voices Fellowship. So it was really fan- a fantastic entry. And then the following year, I served on the selection committee. And then also started, that's when I first started teaching the master class. So that's been my experience with the Emerging Voices Fellowship. And it's been fantastic. I really admire the work that everybody does here. I really admire uh, the uh, dedication of the staff uh, who do so much to make sure that underrepresented writers out there are, are having an opportunity to he- have their voices heard, providing them with amazing things like master classes and, you know, workshops on, on uh, you know, how to hone their voices, uh, you know, having author nights. I mean, it's a really amazing, uh, um, uh, you know, schedule uh, that these writers have an opportunity to really uh, rub shoulders with some of these really fantastic writers here. So it's a program that's near and dear to my heart. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's a really valuable one. And I just have all the respect for what y'all do here. Talk to me about uh, your career as a writer, how, how you came to writing, how you came to teaching. Oh, God. How much time do we have? It's a long story. It is a very long story. How much time do we have? As much as you want. As much as I want. Um, you know, I grew up in, not that far from here, where, we, where we're sitting, I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley in the city of La Puente. Uh, I was born the youngest of 11 children. I was born into a household where, you know, there weren't books. We didn't read. And um, I was this weird kid who was really quiet and uh, very withdrawn, um, not very physically active. And I found, um, I guess I found a way to escape kind of a lot of the, the poverty and the violence that I was seeing in my neighborhood and my family through, it was through literature and through writing. And I first started writing in high school and this was in the 80s. And it was, you know, I was listening to a lot of, uh, you know, new wave music from England. So it was a lot of, you know, the Smiths and the Cure and Susie and the Banshees. And, 
and I was sort of fascinated with with England. And then around this time, also in high school, I was reading you know nothing but you know the canonical works of literature. So it was a lot of Shakespeare and Dickens. So my first sort of attempts at writing were I would you know I produced these really you know crappy short stories that were always set in England, and <laughs> right. always had you know. Uh, there were always there was always they were always set in cemeteries, and there was always descriptions of fog. And something that you never see something, in Southern California. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and 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 there were always characters named like you know like Lord Chesterley or you know Lady Farthing, and you know they would say terrible things like they would deliver terrible lines of dialogue like you know. Dost thou feel tired, my love? Oh you my know, God! You had old timey English and everything. Old timey with it. an e. And, and, and that was my first sort of, those were my first attempts at, at writing. But I think that one of the things that was, you know, really amazing about that experience was that it really taught me how literature has the capacity to really um, slow the world down and mm-hmm. how once it's slowed down, you can really start to uh, interrogate, you know, what's happening around you. Um, and through literature, I was able to to question, you know, why it was that I was living in this environment where I looked around and I saw nothing but brown people. And we were all, you know, we were never told about potentials for going to college. Uh, you know, uh, we were never pushed into careers uh, that that led to, you know, the study of art or literature or, you know, anything creative. It was all vocational. And I couldn't do any of that. Uh, because I was born with a disability, so I, I, I can't, you can't, you don't trust, you can't trust me around heavy machinery, or I can't play sports. So there was really nothing for me to do other than I had to turn to my mind. And so that's how I began writing. And it wasn't until I got to community college that I encountered Latino writers, actually writers of color writing about experiences that were ironically similar to to those of the people around me. And suddenly you know, the idea that literature had to be something that was only produced or that could only be produced uh, in England uh, suddenly was that myth was shattered. And and here I was able to see writers, you know, from places like East L.A. or the Southwest writing uh, stories and poems uh, and and essays that about experiences that that mirrored mine and and my, my my family's. And it suddenly brought this awareness to me that my stories had validity too. Mm-hmm. And and I wanted to learn how to tell them. So that kind of was my, you know, my entry into, into the world of, of, of writing. And, you know, it was just, I was, I was just lucky that, that writing, that literature provided me with the tool to be able to start ans- asking really big questions about my, my upbringing and, and interrogating it in a way that uh, provided an escape. Mm. How did your family feel about you being a writer or pursuing writing as a career? Um, <laughs> I don't think they got me. Right. Uh, I was the first in my family to go to college. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that you know, coming from an immigrant, ex- immigrant background, uh, oftentimes, you know, we're, we're sort of led to think that you know, if we do go to college, then the aim for us is to uh, be a doctor, to be a doctor, a lawyer, you know, to to study something that's going to get you a job. 
because if you get a job and you make a lot of money, then you can then you can help save the rest of your family. And so, you know, my family didn't really put that pressure on me. They just sort of were like, okay, well, you know, he's kind of the one that's going to go to school, and I'm sure he'll figure it out. Was it helpful too that you're like the youngest in eleven? So it was like the other ten could have could like, you know, step in to support the family or be the one that are going to take care of your parents or your grandparents or the aunts and the uncles. Yeah, I mean, less there was, pressure or no? You know, I mean, the, there was pressure, but it was sort of it was like distributed a little, a little more. Uh, I don't want to say equitably, but I guess it was. Right. Um, you know, they they always understood my siblings always understood that I was going to be the one who was going to go to school and my path was going to be different from everyone else's they didn't know how but they knew that it was going to be that it was destined to be different so you know they they really sort of kind of left me alone um and when I started sort of saying that I was going to pursue writing it, it wasn't it wasn't met with like you know scorn or anything like they just were kind of like huh all right right <laughs> you know just kind of like well whatever like i don't know what you're gonna do with it but you'll figure it out right it's um, like almost like a relief that you've picked something right exactly a, a relief that i've picked something and also a, a sort of like all right you know just you're smart enough to figure it out but i really didn't have anyone um kind of guiding me it was it was kind of like i just had to put one foot in front of the other and figure it out figure it out on my own so what's what's one of the first stories either you read or you wrote where you realize, like, I can write about my people? Like, and when I say my people, I mean the people on your street. Like, I think of Sesame Street where it's like, these mm-hmm. are the people on your street. Because <laughs> that's what, like, I write creative nonfiction. I write about, like, you know, mental illness and addiction and suicide and murder because, like, those are the people on my street. Yeah, yeah. So, like, how did you learn that, like, that was okay or acceptable or... Something that you wanted to do. I think it was when I first read. I have to say it was a poem by Gary Soto called History. And um, he makes references to his abuelita. You know, he uses mm-hmm. the Spanish um, I think that was one of the first times that I, I recognized uh, that there was a need for me to want to want to want to write. And then when I read um, a sections of Sandra Cisneros is the house on Mongo Street, mm-hmm. uh, that was when it, it sort of clicked to me that that I wanted to I wanted to do that. You know, I wanted to figure out how to do that thing that they had done. And how, talk about your uh, relationship with Sandra and like being able to, you know, uh, learn from her, yeah. take classes with her. Well, I had a really great opportunity to meet her when I was a graduate student at UC Irvine. It was after my first year, my, my first year was wrapping up and she came to read, uh, she came to the campus and uh, she was reading from uh, her novel, Caramelo, I think, yeah, that was when it was when it was about to come out, and I sort of just walked, you know, after she always has these long lines of people wanting, you know, to sign, and I got to the line and I said, oh, you know, I kind of feel like you're my last of the sort of holy trinity of 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 Chicano writers to me, and and so it's really an honor, and 
And she started asking me, well, what do you do? Are you a writer? And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. And she said, well, are you in an MFA program? And I said, yes, I'm in the MFA program here. And one thing led to another. And before I knew it, she was reaching into her bag and giving me her card and saying, you know, I run this workshop that's very clandestine and it's by invite only. And it's in San Antonio where I live. And she said, would you be interested in, in possibly participating in this? And I said, sure. Wait, you wanted to participate in the clandestine workshop with this amazing person Absolutely. that no one knew about? <laughs> hmm. Okay, who, carry on. Who wouldn't? Yeah. And and so, you know, that's kind of how my my relationship with with someone like Sandra began. And I, you know, I found myself, you know, boarding an airplane and, and headed off to San Antonio. And then I became part of this really special and unique group of, of writers that she had, you know, pulled together writers and scholars and artists who would meet yearly in San Antonio for very rigorous workshops and discussions about the craft of writing and art and activism and you know all of those things that that you know that that made that solidified this idea that I really needed to tell my story I really needed to chronicle the lives and the experiences of people on my street yeah how do you what did she do with regards to workshop structure that you have carried with you into your own workshops? I think, I think that one of the things that I admired so most, so much about, about Sandra's approach to writing is that she always looks for the, um, the sort of emotional crux of characters, what it is that moves characters, uh, to behave and to do what they do. Um, I think that oftentimes we shy away from emotion in fiction because fiction uh, and prose, you know, I'm thinking specifically about fiction, not nonfiction so much, but fiction is all about subtlety. It's all about, um, you know, obfuscation and not being direct. Um, and, and, you know, Sandra kind of taught me to not be afraid to uh, explore emotion uh, and, you know, I think that a lot of times that conversation doesn't make its way into the sort of larger, you know, uh, discussions around at the workshop table in institutions because emotion does not equate like uh, academic sort of rigor. And right. uh, so emotion is sort of like, you know, flighty and like touchy feely. Um, but Sandra was of the opposite mind and you know she said you, you really have to sort of figure out emotionally what's charging your characters and that's something that I really um value and I still I still look to when I teach do you think it's easier to talk about emotion when you have like such a small group of students as you do when you see the EBs because sometimes you have three sometimes you might have four you definitely don't have more than five because we only have five every year yeah, I think it is. I think it's different. And, and I, but I think also one of the challenges also is is to to get students to get some of the EV fellows to 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 dig down deep inside that well of emotion and pull some stuff out. That's what we talked about today. Um, but I think that you know we have a unique opportunity here because we're not in an academic setting, right? Um, you know, we're, we're, we exist outside of the academy. So we have a lot of freedom and flexibility in the way that we teach to be able to have those discussions about emotion and about motivation and about fear, about, about expectations, the kinds of things that a lot of times 
are not really talked about in traditional MFA programs because you know MFA programs was, exist within an academy, right? Mm. So they're inherently sort of looking for uh, a specific type of, of of outcome, right? So here we have a unique opportunity because we're neither you know we're neither part of the institution, but we are part of this sort of larger global conversation of literature, and so that frees us up to be able to do things in workshops like. Like let's talk about let's talk about emotion or let's talk about motivation. Let's talk about what is bugging this character, and why we should care. Hmm. Um, so you know it, it is, and I think the EV fellows are because of that. They're a lot more willing to take risks. You know, if I ask them to do something, uh, they'll do it. You know, without hesitation. And sometimes where, you know, some of my my MFA students in the past might have had some hesitation um, because they're looking at it. You know. F- from a sort of more scholarly and, and critical angle, the EV fellows are just looking at it from an artistic angle, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think produces a kind of, a diff- very different kind of literature. I love that you said, um, why should we care? Like we look at motivation for characters, but why, why do you think that these stories are important? Like why are the stories about the people on our street important? Um, I think right now, I think I think it's important right now because we are, uh, you know, we're living in a, a pretty scary time. We're living in a time where, um, you know, politics and news are becoming more and more polarized. You're getting, you know, one side or the other, depending on, on where you fall on the spectrum. And I think that the EV fellows and, and their voices provide us with an opportunity to see the nuances, right? to see the complexity, uh, to chronicle the lives and experiences of, of, of people whose who's, who's, you know, day-to-day um, you know, realities are not being broadcast. Uh, so they are documenting basically the undocumented. They are you know, giving a, a human face to, to issues of gentrification or immigration or, or you know, uh, queer identity, um, in ways that I think that the news, you know, and, and, and media can't because they're so caught up in all of the drama, right? So I think, and those stories teach us about humanity, yeah, you know, and empathy. And they, they teach us how to connect with, you know, immigrants in, in Syria, you know, uh, who, are, who are dealing with, you know, you know are in, living in war-torn countries and, and are looking to, you know, to find... Uh, sanctuary in, in places like the U.S. And so I think that their stories are, are more important now than ever. Um, and so I think that it's, you know, that's why we should care. Yeah. Uh, I think that their stories have something to tell us about what it means to be human and we, we just need to listen. I love that. Um, we were talking earlier about uh, the, the um, danger of, you know, people who are writing the other story for lack of like a better uh-huh. term, um, being representative of all the others, you know, yeah. the people that live in the blue house are all representative of the people in the blue house and the people that live in the right. red house. So, so tell me about your personal experience in workshop where that has kind of been an issue for you with perhaps someone who is looked up to as the voice of a group of people or a generation well, I think that it really, it's, you know, it's, it's really, I think it's really dangerous when we start to 
look to one person as as the sort of authority on the you know like I'm the authority on the the Latino experience in the U.S. Um, it's it's an unintended sort of you know uh, pressure I think, and and you see that you know you see that in the publishing world and you see that in the you know in in the 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 film industry you know you see people like Harvey Weinstein you know these individuals who are given all this this power and this ability to sort of dictate things that are never questioned, uh, are never uh, interrogated, um, and are kind of allowed to do whatever they want. And I think that it's really dangerous when we put so much so much pressure and so much emphasis on one person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 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 it works to sort of, you know, silence a lot of other very uh, necessary and important experiences of that, of that community, right? Um, you know... I'm but one one Latino writer and and my experience certainly isn't the quintessential Latino experience. There are plenty of other experiences out there. So oftentimes we, we do have this tendency to really reduce people uh, to one or two experiences and without recognizing that, you know, uh, we're complex, you know, we're, we, we're, we're all over the map. We're a lot of things and, and if you don't, allow for the system to 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 let some of those other perspectives uh bubble up and come to the surface then you're really um you're headed towards a a a way of thinking that is you know very dangerous because you're you're brushing people with sort of the one you know stroke and um and not really providing opportunities for some of those nuances to emerge well, it's also like we have this power dynamic, too, where that person becomes like the authority and, you know, could potentially crush other voices in certain situations. Like talk about oh, the yeah. sanctity of the workshop and like why it's so important for all of us to have a safe space as writers. I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly had my share of good workshops and bad workshops, Um you know the 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 bad ones you know certainly stick to um you know uh stick to me uh and i i still remember very vividly uh i think it's important to um to create a culture within the workshop where students feel safe enough to be able to take you know risks and leaps with their work um if you don't create that space and don't as a as a facilitator as a moderator if i don't do that you know and if i create a space where my my students are going to feel restricted or limited then they're not going to be willing to take risks so i have to do a lot of work first and foremost to establish a sense of trust uh not just not just between me and them but between you know them them. yeah (laughs) their their selves right between each each other um so i have to really work at establishing that from the get-go so that they feel safe enough to to take risks with their work and not not take the road that's going to be you know that's going to produce a a sort of the kind of elicit the kind of responses or, or or the kind of you know uh responses in the work that they want but rather to create a space where they're willing to take risks and and say, so, you know, if it if I do this and it fails, then that's all right. You know, no one's going to get mad at you or, or you're not going to get in trouble. You know, you just learn to fail better next time. And, and 
and I think that one of the, my aims is to is to create that space where students feel complete trust to be able to let their guards down and and try new things without fear of being judged or graded or or you know reprimanded. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's important. You know, uh, I would say that yeah, my my aim is always to create a, a safe space where uh, workshop participants feel like they can take you know big leaps and be okay. So how do you, when, when, what are the rules in workshops? I know I am a creative nonfiction writer. So we're, one of the rules that seems to like go across, that's why I'm like, what are you talking about? Like all we can talk about is emotions. Yeah. Um, sometimes you want them to put the emotions back in the box with the right. CNFs. But we have this rule where you really separate the narrator from the writer because there's this potential of like triggering that person. Like you're making a comment on the person, not the story. Not the story. So what, how do you structure a critique? Like what do you tell them going into a critique? I think one of the things I tell them first and foremost is to look for, um, you know, uh, what's motivating a character, like what's motivating them to act the way they're acting you know what what is it that they want uh more than anything and the job of i think the story or the novel is to identify the thing that the character wants and uh put up obstacles <laughs> for them to um uh you know to not get it right um i think that one of the things that i always try to tell my students is to is to start by looking at what's you know in a very sort of general broad sense is what's working and why and what's not working and why you know don't just tell me you know i really think this thing is working but tell me why you think it's working and be specific why is it not working you know tell me like what what it is you feel you know is is missing or lacking um i think that you know it's it's very important for my students to recognize that every character should want something Every character should desire something. Uh, every character should try to pursue something. Um, and, and, and then the story that follows is sort of, you know, them trying to get that. Um, we have to care about characters. We have to care about the people we write about. If we don't care about them, then our readers aren't going to care about them. Mm. Uh, and, and we have to be willing to let uh, the story go in a direction that we may not be anticipating, right? Uh, we may th- we may have it all plotted out, and I've certainly worked with students like this who feel like, well, I I know I know where it's going, so I'm I'm riding toward that end, and and I'm always I'm always telling them, well, like, you should probably be looking at the steps that you're taking, right here now. Don't don't be looking at the horizon, but be looking at what's going on now. Uh, and a lot of them are unwilling to do that. And so, you know, I have to kind of teach them how to not not be so goal oriented with their story, but to just sort of look at, you know, scene by scene what's happening. Um, well, I think that's like being in in love with the process rather than the finished project. Right. right? Exactly. It's like goes, you know, don't be looking for your agent when you're on chapter two. It's not time. Right. Right. It's not time. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's important. I think we always feel like there's this urgency. Um, that there's this need that we have to get our work out there and we, you know, we have to hit that mark. And, and, and I think that, you know, what we do takes a little more time and a little more finessing and, and more thought. And, um, we shouldn't be in such a hurry to, to get all that out there. Um, it'll find its way. And, and we just have to, you know, 
I was able to work with some amazing writers when I was an undergrad and a graduate student. You know, I had people like Susan Strait um, and Jeffrey Wolf and Michelle Latiolet and all these really great writers. And they would all say the same thing, which is, you know, take your time, you know, cultivate your words, cultivate your characters. And, and it was Janet Fitch who, who told me once, you know, readers don't care whether it takes you six months or six years uh, to write a good story. They just, they just, they want a good story. I love Janet Fitch. I do too. But I will interject that unless you're the Game of Thrones guy, readers don't care. Yeah. Because everybody wants him to finish. Oh, really? Yeah. We're all waiting for him so that we can watch the last season of Game of Thrones. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't watch Game of Thrones. Oh my God, you need to watch Game of Thrones. It's so good. So much weird sex stuff and stuff. And you there's, love it. There's um, dragons in it too. There's right? dragons. There's queens. There's people who fly. There's just it's just amazing. Wow. Okay, sorry that was an aside. Let's go back. <laughs> so, what is your advice for? I feel like you know the the workshop is like such an ingrained part of the writing experience. And what's your advice for the darling of the workshop? Because, you know, there's always a darling of the workshop <laughs> and like what that means for their work. And then what it means when you don't jive with your works workshop instructor or you feel like they're not getting your work or, they're you know, it's like an uncomfortable thing. Like, how do you deal with both of those? The darling of the workshop. Oh, God. There was a darling in, in my in my workshop when I was in graduate school. And um. You know, I, the, what I do in my workshop is I, I just try to destabilize that. There, there are no darlings um, in my workshop. We're, we're all and, you know, we're all struggling. We're all trying to, to find our voice. So no one is, is ahead of anyone else in terms of in terms of what I how I handle and approach my students. Um I certainly did have an experience when I was in graduate school with a writer who just, a moderator who just didn't absolutely get what I was doing. And, you know, that was his problem. Like, I, I, I came to realize, like, I, I didn't have to please him, you know, nor did I necessarily want to please him. Um, you know, he was an asshole. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't want to please him. And, and he, was, he was interested in, in stories and in books that uh, I wasn't. And... Though it was kind of frustrating because everybody wants to be, you know, uh, the good student in the class. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't I didn't necessarily want to be the good student. I just wanted to be good at what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think that that, you know, that kind of rubbed him the wrong way because I wasn't looking for his praise. I was just trying to to try. To, I was looking for my own praise. Mm. Right. Um, and, and I think that that bugged him. I, I had this experience when I was in graduate school when one of my workshop uh, comrades uh, wrote, you know, I went up for workshop early, um, one of my first years of graduate school, and I shouldn't have done that because the story that I submitted was, it was, it, it was juvenilia. Like mm-hmm. it was a story that I'd written when I was an undergrad and it had undergrad, you know, um, paw prints all over it. And, did you use words like jejun? No, what's that? It means like young and undergradish. The only no. reason I even know what it is is because I was in a workshop where someone used that. 
Really? And it was like, how jejune of you to use jejune. I have no idea. That's no. the first time I've heard that Please term. use that in a sentence. I will. Later in the day. Okay. I certainly will. But, you know, it, it was a really bad story. Mm-hmm. And it um, happens. It happens. And this individual came up to me and and it was right after workshop and we were at this you know bar on campus and this individual said have you had a chance to to read my my critique that i wrote you and i said no because you know we just got out of class and they're in my bag um and um and so i i said why and he said well because i may I may have said some things that were pretty harsh and I don't want you to, and I stopped him and I said, you know what I could do with your advice? And he said, what? I said, I could either take it or leave it. Right. Right. And he said, yeah. And I said, and that's my choice. Right. And he said, yeah. And I said, okay. And I got up and left. And I, I think that. But is that something that you just already had or is that like a skin that you developed from the work, workshop experience or from being a writer. Like, I feel like some of us come in with that mentality and some of us don't. Like, some of us are devastated by comments. So yeah. how do you help those people that are, like, devastated by comments? And how do you know which ones to listen to and which ones not? I think, um, you know, again, this goes back to my, um, you know, my 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 sort of uh, priority of creating uh, and establishing a a space where my students feel comfortable, uh, you know, letting their guards down and, and really writing, uh, from a place of risk. Um, you know, if, if, they, if they know the rules of the game, if they know the, the, the culture of the workshop, they're going to know that, um, you know, any comment that's given either good or bad is, is, is something for them to use to their advantage to grow from, right? It's not going to be seen as something uh, absolutely uh, critical or or mean or anything. Um, and it's also a question of of uh, distinguishing between criticism and negativity, right? Uh, there is a difference between the two, and and we're asking for criticism, not negativity. So I always try to put those things in context for my students and remind them that. You know, workshop isn't here. We're not here to beat each other up. We're not here to to make each other cry. We're not here to make each other feel bad. We're not. You know, that's just stupid. We're we're here to make to we're here to read each other's work and to to offer honest, rigorous feedback on on what we feel is working and what we feel needs a little more work. And that's all. That's all. And and, and we're all gonna take our turn also. So it's not it's not something like, well, you know, you know, you're going to get off. You're not going to get to be. No, you you you're going to have to you're going to have to be put in the hot seat, too. So we all we all participate in the culture. How do you think EV uh, is different than other fellowships in the country, uh, perhaps with this kind of lean towards being locked out of the literary establishment or, you know, that I feel like term diversity that we're overusing these days. Mm-hmm. How does it stack up to other opportunities like this? I think that it's, um, I think that it's by far the best. Uh, I think that, you know, the EV Fellowship uh, has, 
at its heart this desire to to cultivate uh, those voices that are underrepresented, um, that are not being heard, uh, shedding a light on those stories. Uh, I think that that's an admirable goal, and I, I don't think it's a goal that many other institutions or fellowships are really trying to hone. Uh, you're talking about a, a fellowship that's specifically for writers who lack access, right? And and that's a very rare and genuine thing. And I think it's important that everybody recognize that, you know, that there isn't a, another program out there like this and that, that it is worth, um, you know, uh, supporting and, and, and keeping um, and really valuing uh, in any way that we can because... Um, no one else is doing this and and you know we, we have now because of ev we have all these amazing writers uh people like natasha deon uh people like rena grande you know i could just go on and on and on lillian rivera. lillian rivera i mean there's just all these amazing writers that have come out of this and they've written amazing books and and you know ev fellowship is unique in that it it really does elevate those the voices of those individuals who are underrepresented and unheard uh, and it gives them a platform and that's that's a rare and wonderful thing i love it uh okay so my thought is that for every episode we we talk about ev we talk about you know what happens within workshop within author evening so that listeners get an idea of like what it means to be an emerging voice but also that we have like a craft element to each episode so that there's something that you get homework okay so let's talk about the let's the the assignment that you gave the evs today let's let's close with an assignment okay and then let's also uh talk about a book a craft book that you would recommend to uh to listeners Okay. Um, the assignment that I gave the um, the EV fellows this week was I, I was talking about um, the importance of um, of uh, of sort of um, of exercising your imagination. I think uh, oftentimes we are um, we're too analytical. Sometimes we forget that the imagination is what really fuels a story. So the assignment that I gave the EV fellows this week was to um, identify um, one uh, event or activity that they can do to um, reestablish their connection to their imagination. So it could be, for example, you know, meditating for 10 or 15 minutes. It could be going for a walk without your phone. Uh, it could be, uh, you know, going to a museum. It could be uh, yoga, right? Yeah. A- anything that that allows like you painting, painting or like an acting class. Right. I did acting classes right. trying to improve my craft. Right. Horticulture, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Love it. You know, anything that 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 is is going to provide you with an opportunity to just be alone with that thing, right? Uh, without any um, distraction and there's no there's no end result there's no you know I want you to go to the beach and spend some time looking at the waves and then you know see what that does to your writing if you end up writing great if you don't you don't right it's just this opportunity to hit the pause button 
uh, and to um, get in touch with your imagination again. Mm, I love it. Yeah. And I think as far as books go, craft books, there's one I've been using for, for years called the Modern Light Library Writers Workshop, A Guide to the Craft of Fiction, which was uh, written by this um, uh, individual named Stephen uh, Koch, K-O-C-H. And, you know, I, I've been using it for years and it's, it's full of very simple, straightforward, no-nonsense uh, advice, uh, you know, uh, on writing, uh, anything from, you know, how to live a good writerly life to, you know, how to write good characters, what good plot is, what good setting is. So it's one I've been used, been using for a long time. And what was your last question? I think that was it. <laughs> but I do also want to say thank you so much, Alex, for agreeing to do this and for being my first guest um, I think that it's important that just like a draft of fiction, uh, it's a draft. When you have a first draft, it's a learning experience, right? Absolutely. And it we're absolutely just kind is. of seeing like how it plays out. So hopefully, yep. hopefully the audience will stick with us. I hope so. I, I think that I think that they will. I, I think so, too. And uh, I'd also like to suggest that people order a copy of Stillwater Saints and the five acts of Diego Leone. Both by Alex Espinosa. Uh-huh. Do we have another book here? Because it's not on your bio. You need to update your bio on your website. I know, way. I do. Yeah, because it's I like do. this is coming out in 2013. Yeah, I know. Guess what? It's already passed. It's way past that. <laughs> do you have any other information? that you, Do you have anything coming up? What are you working on now? I actually am working on uh, a new novel. Um, it's about a family of, of Mexican wrestlers, luchadores. Love it. Uh, and then I'm also working on a nonfiction book. I just signed a contract. Keep going. With um, a unnamed press. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And um, it's on uh, the history of uh, sort of a, a social and cultural history of uh, cruising for sex in the gay community. Amazing. <laughs> you know, the EVs are meeting with unnamed press on Monday. Oh, really? press and unnamed press. So oh, this, awesome. is, this sounds like amazing book and I can't wait to read it. Yeah. Uh, can we, for your um, artistic day for the book about the wrestlers, can we dress up and like go to a match? Because they wear the masks and everything. That's really appealing to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. There's a place in LA. Um, there are several um, uh, uh, wrestling uh, 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 venues. Um, that, and then there's one, Lucha Vavum, which is uh, I've heard one of that, that I've attended. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of a little sort of hipstery. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's fun to just sort of get the camp uh, feel of it. Yeah. Uh, it's not very uh, uh, genuine and not very authentic. Uh, it's more sort of burlesque um, oh, but it's kind of an interesting sort of anthropological look yeah. at the ways in which, you know, wrestling has sort of Mexican wrestling has sort of entered into the entered into the larger sort of vernacular. Um, and, and just but there are plenty of like East L.A. has a bunch of Lucha Libre matches going up. You know, you'll see advertisements on telephone poles around L.A. Um, and, you know, I've been to some really great ones. There was one at um, uh, this this. Um, dance this nightclub that my sisters used to go to uh back in the 80s called florentine gardens and there that's was a, still open is it not i think it is right? i think it is yeah yeah so i i there was a really wonderful wrestling match those guys are really really you know it's it's a lot of physical uh you know uh, uh movements that are 
pretty dangerous, um, but they make it into this sort of acrobatic almost art um, that's really fascinating to watch. Well, we'll leave you with that ballet wrestlers in masks, <laughs> right? Love it. Yep. Thanks, everybody. Bye. America champions the freedom to write and believes that freedom of expression and literature are inseparable. Visit pen.org to learn more about what we do. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Join us. Be a part of the larger conversation. Support for EV comes from sources both big and small. Serious financial support comes from organizations like the Amazon Literary Partnership, California Arts Council, New Balloon and Catapult, Los Angeles County Arts Commission, the Ovation Foundation, Pasadena Literary Alliance, the Rosenthal Family Foundation, and UCLA Extension Writers Program. And let's not forget individuals like Jamie and David Wolf. We appreciate you. To the Emerging Voices themselves, this podcast is in support of everything you do and everything you've accomplished. Congratulations. We celebrate you. Thanks to 2012 EV Johnny Alfie for giving us our theme song, Linen, from his band, Tony and Johnny. And to the members of the Los Angeles literary community who have been showing up for us for more than 20 years, donating their time as mentors, committee members, author evening hosts, and masterclass instructors, I have leaned on each and every one of you for advice, and I appreciate you. You've been there to answer my questions, those of the fellows, as well as the questions of prospective applicants. You've written letters of recommendation, introductions, outreach essays, and blog posts. You've encouraged EVs to read at your events and said yes when we've asked you to read at ours. And to Dave Thomas, everything we know about public speaking, we learned from you. This is all just to say, thanks LA, sincerely.